0: Good afternoon, and welcome to today's employer advisory session. What's next for healthcare policy under the Biden administration? My name is Annette Bechtold and I'm the Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Compliance at One Digital. As you know, this this series of advisory sessions has been in response to a rapidly changing economic and healthcare landscape. Um, Where business and HR leaders, they've been forced to take unprecedented actions to protect employees and their organization. The luxury kind of deliberating on key issues has really vanished overnight and and the impact of those decisions are going to be key to survival. So since the election, we've already seen significant actions and indicators that set the stage for health policy focus and changes that are forthcoming from the Biden administration. Healthcare reform is definitely going to evolve. Um, Today, we're going to specifically focus on health policy itself. What can we expect? What are the events taking place now? What are the updates maybe to the Affordable Care Act in this administration? What can we anticipate? And also definitely we can't forget anything related to the pandemic. So as leaders of the One Digital Advocacy Team, our focus is to bring your voice to lawmakers and regulators and to work to educate and affect positive change. Now, in our work, each one of us on this call have leadership roles in the National Association of Health Underwriters and the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers, which are two of the premier organizations that advocate for employers on health insurance and, and in the healthcare space. So please help me welcome my esteemed colleagues.
1: Sure. Hello everyone. Uh, my name is Pete Groenberg and I'm executive vice president here at One Digital and I lead our business operations for the Northeast and the Southeast.
2: Hi, I'm Samantha Oliver. I am managing director of compliance consulting and I lead our team on our consulting with any kind of issues that you have related to compliance. So I work with our consultants, our team members here at One Digital, and then also our clients, just keeping them abreast on the different changes that are coming out that impact your employee benefit plans.
3: And hi, my name is Scott Wham. I'm the Director of Compliance and Innovation for One Digital's Philadelphia markets. Uh, I serve mostly clients in the Northeast on compliance issues with SAM. I work very closely with Annette and Sam on a bunch of different compliance initiatives, but I also serve as the current uh, chair of the Legislative Council for the National Association of Health Underwriters.
0: Awesome. Thanks, guys, for being here. Um, I I just have to give an aside that this is the best team to work with and um, great thought leaders. So hopefully we'll have great things to share with you today. Um, We're going to focus, like I said, on health policy and developments and upcoming changes. So keep in mind that, you know, questions specific to states are probably going to be best directed to a one digital consultant as regulations sort of vary. We're going to really focus kind of more at the federal level. With that, let's get started. And what better place to start than at the beginning? Um, so let's talk about Biden's first uh, first week in office, right? So we have um, a flurry of things that have happened already, and so um, I think that'll give us some insight into what we can expect. So signing 25 executive orders and another 27, I think, memorandums in his first week, we can see that this administration's got a lot of things to say about. Um, policy making, and so I think um, these these executive orders they cover a range of things, but really they do support what he said his top four categories were going to be, and that is COVID nineteen, economic recovery racial justice or equity, and climate change. So the bulk of the executive orders are in those areas. There's a few other categories like health care and immigration reform, et cetera, that kind of round out that list. So it's really important to understand. I want to just take a minute to talk about what is an executive order and what is not an executive order. I think we all have this um, thought that an executive order is the law, and it's not a law. He is the, if you equate it to your business this would be like you as the president saying, hey, I would like my workers to do X. And so that's what, what it does. The Constitution gives the president the executive order privilege, and it allows him to issue federal directives to the agencies that report to him, so the agencies that are part of the executive branch. Now, when it comes to health care, um, there are certain agencies that do a lot more in that space. Typically, Treasury, which uh, is IRS very often for the rules that we see, the Department of Health and Human Services, then the Department of Labor. Those are the ones that interpret healthcare policy and, and develop that health care policy within the confines of what laws already exist. So they're basically the rule makers, right? That's these are the regulatory bodies. So when the president gives an executive order, he's telling these regulatory or rulemaking bodies, hey, I want you to look based on what laws already exist and I want you to explore taking certain actions and how to carry it out. So when I kind of think of... The legislation is what? What are we supposed to do? So Congress says, this is what we're supposed to do. These regulatory agencies develop how we're supposed to get it done. And so that's how you want to kind of think about this. So a few of the orders that I think we talk about um, or that have importance, uh, the first one is strengthening Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. And so very specifically, the policy states, or this executive order states, it is It is our policy. It is the policy of my administration to protect and strengthen Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act and to make high quality health care accessible and affordable for every American. So that's the tenet of this executive order. And I'm not sure that anyone would dispute that or say that that's a bad thing to do. Um, we've been striving at this accessibility of healthcare and affordability forever, right? Um, now the directive that comes out of it, so what does that mean? He's instructing the Secretary of Health and Human Services to consider one, a special enrollment period for uninsured or underinsured Americans to make sure that they can get coverage in the federally facilitated marketplace. And to issue, proposed rules or rulemaking after reviewing all the existing regulations that have been passed or that are in play that have to do with the Affordable Care Act or Medicaid and making sure that they are consistent with what what this new uh, or what this established policy is. Again, quality, affordable, and accessible care. So it's basically giving these agencies the time to review everything that's in place today and make sure that it's in sync. Now, it'll look at policies and practices of the Affordable Care Act. It'll look at um, the marketplace, how people gain coverage, and it'll also um, look at any other policies or practices that might bar people from getting that affordable coverage or access to coverage. It did also revoke two of uh, the Trump administration executive orders. So President Trump had issued his on his inauguration day to minimize the economic burden of the Affordable Care Act within the confines of the law pending repeal of the that law. Well, as we know, the law didn't get repealed. This particular executive order was revoked. And so that that is no longer in the books. And the other thing that was revoked was another executive order that Trump had done in October of 2017. So much later, that expanded um, access to care through using things like the, for, uh, the association health plans, expanding the um, availability of short-term limited duration health insurance, and expanding health reimbursement arrangements to include these individual coverage HRAs. So those are gone. Now, on the heels of that, we have the CMS, who the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that just opened up the special enrollment periods. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. The other um, couple, I think, that that we can uh, that kind of... Uh, bridge into our space includes the economic relief to COVID-19 and that's to help, you know, individuals, small families, small businesses, um, anybody affected by the pandemic and make sure that people can don't have barriers in getting funding or, or help. And so it has the departments looking at that. The other one that we're going to spend uh, some time talking about, because I know you all had some questions when you sent them in earlier about, oh, we've got, uh, you know, what about the vaccines and how does that work with healthcare workers? Well, one of the Uh, orders is all about protecting, um, health and safety, right? The workers health and safety. So to reduce that risk, um, that workers can contract um, COVID-19, they're going to start requiring certain things and looking at what else they have people, uh, employers responsible to do. So there may be some things there. And within two weeks, they're supposed to issue some guidance on what things they can do to further protect workers. So I think those are some some big ones. And then of course, we've seen all the ones with domestic travel, et cetera, and protecting people. So if you have workers that, are, that travel for business, those will be things that you want to pay attention to. So those are some of the big pieces. Um, So I want to dig into a few of these topics. Let's start and... Uh, really focus on the ones that are surrounding the Affordable Care Act, because that's that's what we've worked most often with uh, employers. And I saw a bunch of questions that y'all had already about how is this going to affect what we have to offer? How does it affect what we're already doing under the Affordable Care Act? So it's no secret that, you know, President Biden's a huge uh, advocate of the Affordable Care Act. It's one of the biggest policy changes that came out of the Obama-Biden administration. So the last time that we were all together, we talked about um, the pending Supreme Court case on constitutionality of ACA. So let's start there. I mean, that's if the ACA is, a is no longer constitutional, what happens to this whole thing? But I want to do like a little recap there and then talk about what we think now with the Biden administration and, and what might transpire. So Sam, do you want to take um, uh, take us through a, a brief snapshot of where we are on this case?
2: Sure. Um, so yeah, so the last time we had this session back in November, so on November 10th, the US Supreme Court heard all our oral arguments on whether the ACA is constitutional in whole or in part. Um, we haven't heard an opinion yet. Um, it's likely we won't expect a ruling on the matter before the Supreme Court's term ends, which is in June of 2021. Um, but just kind of more background, the origins of this case actually kind of go back all the way to 2012 when the Supreme Court originally upheld the constitutionality of the ACA penalty on individuals who lack health coverage, or which is also known as kind of the common name is the individual coverage mandate. And the justification for why it was constitutional was because the Supreme Court found that this fell under Congress's power to tax. What changed was in December of 2017, President Donald Trump signed into a law a new tax bill that eliminated the ACA penalty for those individuals that lacked that health care coverage essentially zeroed it out. Following that, several Republican state attorney generals, led by the state of Texas, filed a lawsuit saying that now because it's zeroed out, it's unconstitutional, this isn't a tax, it no longer falls under one of Congress's enumerated powers. Um, in December of 2018, the test, Texas District Court struck down the ACA. Um, but essentially stayed or put their ruling on hold um, pending appeal. It went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. They deemed it was also unconstitutional, and then the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, and that's where we are right now. They heard the oral arguments on the 10th of November. So, in the meantime, um, while this kind of plays out in the courts, the healthcare law remains fully in effect during litigation, including employer coverage obligations and the reporting requirements. So.
0: What, uh, what do we think that the change in administration, do you, is this going to impact the case in any way, do you think, Sam?
2: Well, President Biden, as you mentioned, has fully voiced the support for the ACA, and this has been reinforced by the executive orders that he signed, and then also statements on his website, things that he said in his campaign. Um, so it could be that any decision that does come out of the Supreme Court could be moot. Maybe they'd make some kind of legislative changes. Maybe they actually put back in the penalty or they write in a severability provision. Um, And based kind of on the questions and comments that were asked during the oral arguments, it's likely appear that the solid majority probably will uphold the ACA, perhaps maybe just striking the individual mandate uh, requirement um, and leaving the rest of the law in place. Uh, But until a decision is come out or rendered, the exact scope of the court's ruling remains kind of speculative. And then likely it is that Biden will just move forward with what he promised to do, you know, upholding or expanding on the ACA and simply just build on the current structure that is.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of consistent with this uh, executive order that he has about, you know, strengthening the ACA. Um, Peter, Scott, any other comments um, with regard to that pending case?
3: Yeah, I I think that um, one of the, One of the challenges uh, regarding this case is that's politically messy for both sides. Um, It's not something that one side or the other is gonna be left holding the bag entirely. Um, A a lot of, obviously Republicans have a high level of hostility toward the Affordable Care Act. And, uh, and Democrats uh, have a high level of hostility toward Republicans for making a run at repealing the Affordable Care Act. But one of the one of the challenges right now is the Senate makeup make, will make it very hard to pass any type of massive replacement for the ACA, uh, which could be politically disadvantageous for both sides. So what what I'm most interested to see is. Joe Biden's a creature of the Senate. He used a Senator for decades. Uh, He has deep relationships with individuals in the Senate on both sides of the aisle. At least that was a major part of his campaign uh, promise. It'll be interesting to see if Biden tries to leverage some of those old relationships that he has with say uh, Uh, Senator McConnell, uh, for instance, to see if there's a way to to address this legislatively with some small piece of legislation that would implement some form of small coverage mandate to get a stay of execution for, uh, for the Affordable Care Act as it pertains to this case. It could even be implementing sever- clear severability language uh, within the statute and getting, getting uh, uh, a, a bipartisan coalition to say, hey, look, none of us can do anything right now, and if this goes away, it's going to be politically consequential for both sides of the aisle perhaps we could implement some type of targeted piece of legislation, just the buy a stay of execution and, and a severability clause could accomplish that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see, look, that was a big part of uh, the president Biden's campaign is I've got relationships in the Senate. I can work across the aisle. Uh, this would be a pretty significant test to see if that's possible.
0: Yeah. You know?
3: Yeah. You know, and that's I was going to say, the only thing I, I'd add to that is just given,
1: um, once, uh, We from our last session that we had and and at that point, we didn't know how the Senate was going to race and Georgia is going to turn out. So the risk levels were still a little higher. And now that, you know, that's been um, been determined and there is this uh, control from the White House through through Congress on the Democratic side, probably the, the risk level goes down, even if there was supposed to be, even if the Supreme Court came up with a surprise ruling, I think they would fix this in in a way that would allow it to at least stay intact, where we couldn't really say that a few months ago, the risk level was, was running higher at that point.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Pete. Yeah. You know, um, uh, staying in this same vein with the ACA, you know, one of the first changes we're seeing, obviously, is this first executive order, right? Um, the announcement and then the uh, subsequent announcement already and posting by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services to expand the special enrollment period. So when I look at the, the language on the expansion specifically, um, this applies to the federally facilitated marketplace, um so not any of the states that have their own state based exchange so but, but that's like thirty six states with the federally facilitated right, so virtually most right um so it it's allowing starting February fifteenth and ending may fifteenth anyone to uh exercise their right to come in without having necessarily some sort of um rule or a change in status, like they got married or they lost their coverage or things of that nature, which has been the rule for a special enrollment period. Basically, this is pretty much anybody can just apply. So with that, um, Scott, what are some of the pros and cons like with this special enrollment just saying, okay, here's just a new window. Everybody enroll now.
3: Yeah, so just to to give a little bit of historical perspective on on open enrollment in the individual marketplace through healthcare.gov or your state-based exchange, if you live in a state that has a a state-run exchange, is that back when the Affordable Care Act was was being debated in Congress and deals were being struck, one of the big concerns that insurance carriers had before they signed on to the law was that individual would wait until they got sick, and then jump in and buy health insurance when they actually needed it, and and not buy, pay for health insurance when they didn't need it. Which is kind of how the system works. The system works when you have people who are not actively utilizing healthcare paying into the insurance pool to pay for individuals who are utilizing healthcare. So in order to get insurance carriers behind the idea, they limited the window uh, that individuals could buy insurance. And if you didn't buy insurance during that time, you were frozen out throughout the year, unless, as in that reference, you have some type of life event. You you give birth to a child or you adopt a child or you get married or you lose your job or uh, you lose your employer-sponsored coverage. That would enable you to buy insurance. But the concept there is that is that you've had some type of change that would necessitate you jumping on. You weren't just waiting until you got sick. So when we think about an open enrollment period now, the people who maybe had waived insurance insurance during that open period where they could buy it, The risk, obviously, is that people are sick now and they're jumping into the pool, uh, which could cause premiums to go up. The positive would be, look, now's not a time I want anybody walking around without insurance. Uh, I, I would have said that if you waived insurance going into 2020, you were given notice that insurance is pretty... Uh, important right now and, uh, and, and, and that I hope you would have learned that lesson about insurance going into 2021 during the open enrollment period. But the upside would be, look, it gives people a chance to jump in. The downside would be people could be jumping in after a really expensive diagnosis and, uh, and it could cause an increase in premiums for other individuals who had been buying insurance all along. So I understand the policy behind, uh, look, it's a pandemic. We want people to be insured. But I also understand the position that, hey, you know, we're still in a position where people could wait. We're still in a position where people can be issued a policy regardless of their health status. So we need to limit when they can jump into the into the pool so that we make sure that there aren't high rates of adverse selection. Um, I'm hoping that that impact is relatively minimal. It's not a huge window of time. Um, A lot of people have made their health insurance decisions for 2021. Um, But I, I see pros and cons on both sides. I'm hoping the pros outweigh the cons on this one
0: yeah Pete, any thoughts there yeah
3: i i I think that
1: um, you know this is for employers and you know our clients and their employees uh, what this allows you to do some some who are you know this is a a twin problem between a economic crisis and a health crisis, and so for people who are potentially going to be furloughed or lose lose their job and can't get health coverage, as uh, unfortunately things are still going on um, across the country, that, that, that this special open enrollment does provide the pathway for those individuals and probably gives employers who are facing these very difficult decisions. Uh, so these folks do have an ability as an alternative to, to, to COBRA, and find their way onto uh, one of these exchanges. I'd also say what we've learned a lot during this past year is how large the gig economy is and how many you know, really sole proprietors there are out there and people who were trying to survive as best they can through this crisis. And you know, still, as each day passes, it, it maybe gets tougher and that they need to find their way into the, the best type of coverage for themselves and their families.
3: Yeah, to Pete's point, it almost feels like a reset button that the administration's hitting on healthcare.gov and the federal marketplace, um, where it gives this administration an opportunity to communicate what they want to communicate about accessibility uh, to individuals in the country for healthcare through healthcare.gov. They want to reset the subsidy programs. They want people to understand what's available to them. And and to be honest, that marketing was not as aggressive under the previous administration. So that's, there's, it's a high priority to kind of hit the reset button with the Biden administration in communicating this and it gives that opportunity to do it and to Pete's point businesses are making really hard decisions right now regarding personnel um, there are a million different pressures on top of our clients trying to navigate this at least it gives some peace of mind that family members and and, and, and individuals who work for the organization if they need to make a negative employment decision or, or furlough or, or terminate, um, that there that there is this safety net that's going to be there uh, for the foreseeable future, or for, for the next few months, should I say?
0: Yeah, you know, I, what I think is really interesting is that the policy is exactly the same. Both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have the exact same policy. It's just that the roads that they're going to take are going to be completely different. So I think that that's an important piece to understand. Everybody wants affordability and accessibility. It's just how do you get that? There are some very vastly different theories, and so we're going to see some different things, to your point, Scott, on that. And I do think, yeah, it's this weighing. Again, if we kind of go back to what the Biden administration and what Biden has been saying are his priorities, COVID-19 is his first priority. So he's he's set pretty, pretty specific standards. So when it comes to that, this kind of isn't surprising that he would actually say, okay – what, let's open this window a little bit longer for pe- for people to get in, and we'll worry about the. Healthcare and the affordability piece second. Let's worry about the pandemic first. And so um, that's fairly consistent with what he said he was going to do from from that standpoint. Right or wrong, you know. Um, So yeah, uh, there's always a trade off to every action that you have. So you have to make those decisions about what's worth it at the time. And and so we can see that this particular administration that's fairly consistent coming forward. Um, You know, kind of running down that road a little bit. um, One of the challenges of the uh, affordable care. I shouldn't say. Well, I guess challenge. it's been challenged, but one of the pieces of the Affordable Care Act that has been there for 10 plus years now, that is one of the tenets of the Affordable Care Act, is that the Affordable Care Act specifically dictates that the Secretary of Health and Human Services, um, I want to uh, create a, a public option, so I want to come to that topic, but in, this, um, uh, in the Affordable Care Act, the second thing that it also talks about is that um, this affordability piece and that employers are part of it in that they are offering coverage and that there's subsidies in the exchange as well. So these are the two next things that I kind of want to talk about. So let's start with this last one. Um, under the Affordable Care Act, there are subsidies available in these individual marketplaces, right? So if I go and I don't earn, I earn less than 400% of the federal poverty line, I they are going to help me with my premium. And if I learn, earn less than, uh, it used to say, and I earn less than two fifty, I get help with my out of pocket, right? I get my out of pocket, my cost sharing subsidies too, deductible out of pocket. So those become lower in those plans. Um, However, if my employer offers me coverage, and whether or not they, you know, they make an offer to me that's affordable as the employee, but they don't pay anything for my children or my spouse, they don't have any contribution. That affordable that's still considered an offer affordable offer to them, and they're not eligible for a subsidy. So this is what's what was termed very early on as the family glitch, and so. Sam, is there any other, like, very specifically on the rules regarding subsidy eligibility um, and this affordability piece? Can, can you maybe restate that a little bit clearer than I did? Sure.
2: So, yeah, so subsidy eligibility is, as you mentioned, based on income. Um, but there is that kind of caveat that if the employee is offered coverage that's deemed affordable for the ACA and it provides minimum value, they're not eligible to receive that subsidy on the exchange. So even if they make below that income threshold because they have affordable coverage that provides minimum value, they can't get the subsidy. And that, as you mentioned, this only applies for coverage of the employee. It doesn't depend or make any difference of what the cost is to add dependence to the plan. That's not taken into consideration. So that's kind of where that. Family glitch comes in because even though it's affordable for the employee only, it's not affordable for the family, they're not going to be eligible for those premium subsidies. Yeah, thank you. That
0: was,
3: yeah. was nothing I did. <laughs> and, this, and this was, I mean, from a business perspective, I remember consulting back in 2013 and 2014 with businesses who were preparing, gosh, even 2012, uh, businesses that were preparing for the employer mandate, uh, the employer sharing responsibility provisions to take effect. We were working with a lot of companies who had had their employee populations that they had historically offered benefits to. And then we're having to now contemplate, am I going to expand? And a massive benefit offering to a bunch of other employees, or uh, potentially risk penalty liability. And, you know, out out of an, uh, you know, sometimes fiduciary responsibility to shareholders out of responsibility to to partners in the company, um, they had to make a business decision that look, we have to offer insurance some type of insurance to avoid these penalties because the paying the excise taxes for the penalties uh, is way more expensive than, than offering a base level uh, plan, single coverage plan and making it affordable. So in an effort to protect the company and, and to keep in mind the bottom line and, and really try to avoid uh, paying needless excise taxes to the federal government, a lot of businesses offered affordable base level, I would say it's a bronze level, minimum value equivalent type plan to their full-time employees um, and, and and they would allow employees to carry that contribution to family tier, but the difference between single coverage and family tier, as everybody on this call knows, is substantially different, right? Um, to where to where you know the family tier wasn't affordable at all, and and over time employers started to learn you know this could have a negative impact on the rest of the family's subsidy eligibility, but they have to keep in mind their bottom line. So so employers understandably made the decision that look we got to protect against penalties, but it has this negative. Outcome for family members. So one of the things that is going to be targeted under the Biden administration is: is there a way that we can that we can redraft the language of the Affordable Care Act to uh, potentially make it the case to where, look, the employee is not going to be eligible for a subsidy, but the family member can go get can, can go get a subsidy. The cost of that is going to be substantial. It's going to be a substantial price increase from where the Affordable Care Act sits right now from a budgetary perspective, but it is something you're gonna be eyeing up. One other thing that I always found very interesting that if there are business owners on this presentation right now, this might make you very angry to learn this little detail, especially if you invested vast amounts of treasure into coming into compliance with the employer mandate, is that one employers offer of coverage can protect another employer from penalty liability. And, and and how this happens, and this is why there's gonna be an added level of scrutiny and urgency on this issue at the federal level. How this happens is, let's say I work for One Digital, which is a large company who offers me perfect single coverage, uh, affordable, which they do. I'm just going on the record, the benefits are great. Well, let's just pretend uh, they don't offer great family coverage. Um, let's pretend that you know they don't. They do offer great family coverage. But let's pretend they don't. My wife works for another large company. Let's say that she works for an ALE who's subject to this to this uh, uh, employer mandate. Let's say they're not offering coverage. They're they're like we're just going to pay penalties. We're not going to offer coverage. One digital's offer of single coverage that's affordable to me. Has protected my wife's employer from penalty liability because she can't go to healthcare.gov and get a subsidy because of the offer of single coverage to me. So one employer's compliance and 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 coming and offering this coverage can actually protect another company from penalty liability because the spouse or family member can't go get a subsidy. So that, the-
0: that's an awesome point. You are absolutely right. Um, I, I think back too to um, I had never really thought about that, but yeah. So that's, there's an extra cost for those employers because potentially that could then start to hit them because the We did.
1: We, seeing, we, we, we had a status, very. Yeah, what, look, what do you think's going to change? What 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 might be the risk uh, going forward that, that might the uh, uh, Biden administration might change relative to that.
3: So what you could do is you could, in order to address that protection, one company protecting another, you could draft language that says an employer's offer of affordable minimum value coverage just impacts the employee right, who's being offered that coverage, but it doesn't impact the spouse or dependent children. And then that spouse would be eligible to go get a subsidy. We did an analysis with one with a very large client of ours in south, southern New Jersey in a rural part of the state where they were protecting more or less Every other employer in the county, because they were offering minimum value affordable coverage, and they were finding out that a lot of their their local competitors were not. So all their employees and if they had spouses that were working for those competitors couldn't trigger a penalty. So that's something that I, I hasn't gotten much play in the media, hasn't gotten much coverage, but is it, you know it actually could form the basis of a constitutional challenge to the Affordable Care Act employer mandate. Uh, there are no other. I can't think of another example of a law where one employer's compliance can protect another employer from exposure.
2: That's uh, And that's such a, that's a huge that's thing. Fine. You know, I was thinking I mean, about the nuances that you're giving our employers these light bulbs of ideas, and I'm like, mm, just bump the brake. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice going, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when I think back to why this came about too, um, you know, it was, it was again, this, this idea of this is a law passed that says what, but the how doesn't really fit. And so when the when it was when it originally came out and was talking about affordability, it was supposed to be based on on the family income, right? Affordability was supposed to be determined based on family income, and. and um, the uh, Kathleen Sebelius who was the uh, secretary of HHS during the Obama administration she got a barrage of <laughs> employers going how are we supposed to know that we don't know people's family income you can't ha- hold us accountable how would we know that so then the, in the rulemaking process they said okay well we'll base affordability on the employer mandate and the penalty only on what's affordable to the employee but here's where the two don't meet that right is this affordability for the rest of the family Family, et cetera, and this is what caused that family glitch piece. So it's a really good example. When we come back to let's say the what and the how don't necessarily meet, and what are all the unintended consequences and trying to piece solutions together, you know, when you think about that. Um, talking question. about. Do you
2: think you know, that right? Biden is looking to maybe remove kind of that firewall, whatnot, with, like, you know, if you have affordable coverage, that's minimum value to expand subsidies out for anybody just based off of income?
0: Well, so here's something that I I definitely think he's going to. I definitely think he's going to because one of the things that he said, if you remember back in during all of his campaigning, was that no employee should be should have to take their employer plan. And I think that those are important words when we start to think about what, you know, what is the right solution from the administration standpoint? Do they think, um, you know, do they, do they want to put the individual more in control of, of their options, right? And so if I'm, you know, my employer makes this offer, if I don't take that, nobody's going to help me with my, Premium, right? I'm stuck with. I have to take the employer plan, whether I like it or not. And so, I, I do wonder about that. I don't know about you, Pete. Do you think about that too?
1: I mean, it's it, it was definitely, as you said, it was he. He made comments, and then you'd see maybe a, a clarification or a retraction about that because he knew. Those words were stepping over a line now into covered employees at an employer and what might happen if they did suddenly allow people to opt into the exchange off of a covered plan. That was not the original intent. But right. you know, I, I think we're, we're all watching that that closely, and I think that's part of our collective advocacy, Because yeah. I think you know, depending on from an employer perspective, that that can be a good or or, or bad thing. Uh, you know, depending on your your goals and objectives with yeah. what you're doing for your employee population.
3: And exactly. and Pete, and Pete the, the the I think it's worth mentioning that to do that would require statutory action, right? It would require legislative action. One detail that is really important to keep in mind for anybody who's listening to this presentation is that the more progressive policies that Biden has, um, for instance, potentially removing a firewall between an employer offer of coverage and subsidies on healthcare.gov is not universally accepted within the Democratic Party. And that there are at least three Democratic senators right now where that would be a non-starter due to the incredible increase of price yeah. uh, and cost for subsidies on on healthcare.gov that would that would um, uh, result if they remove such a firewall, and that and that when we talk about larger things like public option from a legislative perspective, legislating things like public option or legislating uh, uh, even fixes to the Affordable Care Act, it it's not a a guarantee that even the Democratic Party is aligned in the Senate on these bigger issues.
0: Well, that's such a great point, Scott, because what's the second thing on the list? The economy. And that would have a huge piece. When the ACA was put into place, it did not contemplate erasing all of employer-sponsored coverage for the 160, million people that have their coverage that is subsidized through employers. It never contemplated that. And to do something like that would be a significant change in cost. So that, yeah, so exactly. But could they look for some place for the, to try to help employees on this family glitch piece? I think maybe, yeah. You know, um, that that's something, because a lot of that came out of the, that rulemaking piece, that there might be some things there that, that could be helpful. And what you don't want to do is to keep prohibiting those. I want to pivot a little bit to um, on this ACA piece. Um, in the ACA, the ACA, as it was written, requires the secretary, um, who was Kathleen Sebelius at the time, in the Obama administration and also Alex Azar then in the Trump administration, whoever they, they all inherit, inherit whatever is going on as they change, they move into that role. But it requires, the ACA requires the, requires HHS secretary to create a public action that exists within the law and nobody ever did it. I mean, now could, uh, there was speculation during the time that Kathleen Sebelius was there that she could be taken up on charges for not following the law, right? Um, so I think about that now and I think about the, you know the p- campaign pieces of public option, right? at the federal level, and then we're seeing some state action. So I want to talk about that. So Pete, um, thoughts about the likelihood of public option in this administration um, from your perspective, what, what are you thinking?
1: Well, I, I'd say going back to the, um, presidential election cycle. And as early as the primaries and the you know, the mudslinging around everybody's position on health care and single payer became the topic until yeah. Biden started to come a little bit more to the center with his comments. And that's when he started talking about a, a public option alternative. And then you move into the general election. And and once again, it was still out there as a topic of, of you know, w- will um, now Biden move in a direction that 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 puts a public option in place, but still he kept get getting painted by the far left and a single payer so you know here we are now now everything's settled in Congress with the the, the um, Senate going democratic, and so there's probably a, a bit more likelihood today that something around a public option could. Materialize, but you know I think if you if you start to break that down, you look at within the Republican ranks, um, they're pretty unified that that they do not want to see this. They they don't want more government as in, in in many respects, and certainly in healthcare. I think they're they would much rather see something get put into place that that as you said and that a few times you know that's going to help reduce start reducing costs for employers and employees and improving uh, more access and covering more people. So let's figure out in maybe a private public partnership sort of way what can, what we can do, and then you move over to the administration and the Democratic Senate and the House and say, all right, they must be unified. But, you know, really there, there's probably three different factions. You've got the, the again, the far left that would like to see a single payer start to emerge here fairly quickly. And we think that's, you know, pretty much DOA and just it's not not even going to uh, be, be part of what Biden kind of moving to the second option with kind of the more middle of the road Democrats who are thinking, yes, maybe this would would be um, something that that does make sense and we should move down that path once we settle some of these other issues around a stimulus package getting passed. Um, But but then it it moves to, and Scott already mentioned this, that very fine line of, all right, if we think we have enough people that, that might be interested. But all we need are just a few people that break ranks. And it, it appears that there's already been public statements from some Democratic senators. I don't want more government in place you know, with a public option. So then it starts to maybe reduce the likelihood that something's going to happen. But needless to say, I think this is going to continue to be a hot topic going into the next several months. And we'll, we'll see how it plays out. So I don't know what the rest of you think about that.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Sam, um, I was just going to ask Samantha about uh, her thoughts on on public option and kind of really what it is. I think some folks don't, maybe there's lots of different types of public options. So I think that that might be worth some comment here.
2: So yeah, so the public option essentially would be a federally run health plan that kind of sits on the marketplace exchange alongside other private plans. So individuals who are eligible in the exchange kind of plans could have the option to choose between that federally run health plan and then one of the private plans. Um, I think that if there's going to be a public option, there needs to be a lot of policy choices that'll have to be made, specifically the impact on employers and the healthcare system as a whole. Um, for instance, it, we just kind of talked about the firewall. So, if someone has an offer of employer-sponsored coverage that's still deemed affordable or minimum value, or even if not, they just have an offer, are they even eligible to elect the public option? Um, and then also I just think kind of more of like the rippling effects, or are we on a even playing field? So,
3: mm-hmm. if the
2: public option can compete with private health insurance, are those negotiated rates going to be available for private individuals, or private or group health plans, group employer plans? I don't know. You know, having government in there kind of still being the referee, but kind of also a team player is kind of an interesting dynamic. Yeah, oh, for sure. Scott?
3: Yeah, no, I, I, I think that if if the Biden administration pursues a public option, um, they will be betting that the electorate supports a move to single payer eventually, that that's the gamble that they'd be making. Right. And if there's one thing we've learned in the past, I'd say 12 years, even going all the way back to 1994, is that health policy is incredibly risky from a political perspective. Um, There's a lot of innovation in in the private sector uh, around controlling health care costs, improving pharmacy care, prescription drug access, that I have a lot higher hopes for than Congress passing a comprehensive, uh, massive overhaul. I mean, just look at what happened to Democrats after the Affordable Care Act. They lost effective congressional power for eight years. Yeah. Um, look what happened to the Trump administration after they tried to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They lost mm-hmm. the midterm elections, right? They lost control mm-hmm. of the House of Representatives, which effectively killed a legislative agenda for the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Um, look what happened. You know. It, it, so, so right now in the midst of a pandemic, the ACA court case had implications in the last presidential election. Uh, that was a major talking point for, Democratic, for the Democratic side um, that got them the presidency, the House, and the Senate. Right? So it, this is really risky territory politically. And, uh, and the, the level of courage, or if courage is the right word, gumption, it might be a better word, uh, to, to make a run at this, they would be betting that there is a massive amount of support going this direction that I just don't see yet, and looking historically at, at health policy generally, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm holding my breath more for private sector innovation and <laughs> controlling costs than I am for, for, for getting everybody in lockstep behind uh, some of these larger programs.
2: I think those are, those are, go ahead. Back to what you said, Annette, you know, the employer-based system is like the largest provider of coverage in the U.S. Yeah. I think you mentioned it provides like health benefits for more than I think 170 or 180 million Americans and their families. So just switching this is like huge. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's not something to be taken lightly for sure. The other thing that uh, you made me think about Scott, I absolutely agree with you. I mean that it's significant. I think the other thing that we've really learned over this time and, and I agree with you, I go back to '94 when small group reform came in, I go back, you know, in 97, when you had HIPAA come in and all these Big pieces of legislation that change, And even back to when managed care was first introduced in the 90s, you know, um, and watching all of these changes, I think the one thing we keep learning over and over again, or maybe not learning, maybe that's the thing, <laughs> is that one size does not fit all. And so all of these sweeping pieces of legislation, they're good for some and they're not good for others. There's winners and losers in all of these. And I think you bring that up really well. Is that worth the risk polit- politically? Because you're not going to win everybody over with whatever you're trying to do. And and we see that it, you know everything was set up at a state level, right? The states have authority over regulating uh, and all of the mandates that exist at the individual and at least at the small group level. That's who drives everything, and so to have this federal legislation sweeping has really been challenging for these individual states. And now we're seeing some of the states, right, Scott, that are coming out and saying, "Well, maybe we're going to do a public option, right?" And they're doing things differently. So it's not just this the,
3: the federal level.
1: I, I think Annette, that's it's a good point uh, uh, that, that this might be more likely to see something emerge at a given state level. And, and it'll be interesting to see how it rolls out, how it works. And, 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 um, but, but before you take this bigger bite and bigger risk, like Scott just described, it's, it's probably less likely it'll happen at a federal level.
3: Yeah. And what's what's interesting is, is right now, Washington state is a state that implemented a public option, but the legislation was passed in Washington state implementing that public option before COVID-19. Right right, right now, so, so one of the concerns that um, the medical community has with a public option is that the reimbursement rates um, paid to providers would be much lower than what they receive from the private Private insurance markets, which means they get paid less. Um, providers are an incredibly sympathetic population right now. Um, politically, it's very risky going after the provider community when we're asking them to sacrifice their own uh, uh, health and safety to treat those who are battling COVID. Um, it's at all levels, and 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 there is no uh, provider that escapes the risk. Even your, you know, I went to my dentist the other day. Um, for the first time, don't tell anyone, for the first time since the pandemic started, <laughs> me too. Uh, yeah, and 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 my dentist is taking a risk, having me come in and 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 do it. so so every provider right now is in a position of uh, where we're expecting them uh, almost to a level of entitlement that they make this sacrifice. And messing around with their payment structure right now at a governmental level um, is politically risky, to say the least, especially since we don't know when we're going to be through this situation. We don't know when this is going to end. We all, fingers crossed, it's soon. Vaccines work. But, you know, we're asking them to sacrifice right now. And they're, they're a sympathetic population. You know, Scott, it's interesting that, that you, you bring up the providers and, and sort of the, the, the status
1: that, that they're in right now. You could almost make the same argument, and I'm not sure we're going to have enough time to get into the whole prescription drug pricing, but there could be more sympathy, if you will. It's hard to even believe you use that word, but, but you know, how people look at the, the cost of, of pharmaceutical drugs and who they think might be behind the high costs that are there and looking at the pharmaceutical companies directly, but now they're kind of saving the day, right? And so they, are, are yeah, they less exactly.
3: likely to be a, a target for now? Because right now they're a bit more saving. Pete, those are two of our favorite targets, <laughs> our pharmaceuticals exactly. and, and provider costs. <laughs> and right now I'm, I'm sitting here saying, I can't believe how like, fast oh. they develop these vaccines. Um <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, yeah.
0: <laughs> I know all good. And you know, th- uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I am happy that you're all going to the dentist. to this. <laughs> but, um, they, yeah. I do want to switch over and talk to talk about um, COVID. So now that you bring that up, that's good. Uh, last topic that I really want to cover because I know we've gotten a lot of questions in the queue on this. And also um, before this session started from employers and we're getting lots um, since the pandemic and the national um, emergency is still in effect, um, we have we have to, there's a lot of focus for employers on, like, what else do we need to do? What else is next? So, um, you know, we've done lots of, when the Families First Coronavirus uh, Relief Act came out, we had the extended, the emergency paid sick leave, the extended leave, et cetera, that expired in December. But there were pieces in the Consolidated Appropriations Act that was passed in December. So um, we get a lot of questions on this. So, Sam, I wonder if you can take us through, um, what is this extension that came out um, to the FFCRA with regard to these things from the uh, Appropriations Act? Sure.
2: So as you mentioned, the FFCRA actually expired on December 31st, 2020, but through the CAA, this massive piece of legislation that Annette so graciously read for us, and there's a blog on our our website for it, um, there is a portion in there that kind of the payroll tax credit for any type of leave under the FFCRA. So the CAA doesn't actually extend that December 31st expiration date, which means that employers are not required to provide paid sick leave or that expanded FMLA. Um, but rather, if an employer has the option to voluntarily extend it, so if someone, if an employee has kind of a leftover balance or they never used it in 2020, they can extend that out until March 31st, 2021. So we've got an extra three months. Well, now we only have two months, it's February. And during this time, if the employer allows them to go out on that leave, they still get that payroll tax credit. So the CIA doesn't give an additional, it just means whatever you didn't use in 2020, the employer has the option again, it's all voluntary to allow you to take it during the timeframe until March 31st, 2021.
0: Yeah, so um, so it's, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of interesting that some of these come out and are optional for employers instead of saying, employers, you have to. These are some of the first things I've seen like that that I can think about where the employer has the option to do something. Um, it's available if you want to use it and not, you, and they can do it for two years, right? It could be, or I'm not two years, I'm sorry, through the 31st, it's, it's allowable for their tax credit too, right? Yeah. Yeah, they can. So so I think, can think do. that that's interesting, Yep.
2: I mean I think it yeah, we've also seen some states have kind of updated their own kind of paid sick leave. So they may be updating or issuing new ones related to COVID-19. So they could be based off of COVID-19 type of leave or illness. quarantine and then I've seen some other states have done it for school closures because I know a lot of the paid leave usually is just related to an illness or sickness Um, but some states have or actual local authorities have extended it out to kind of these school closures allowing these paid type of leaves
0: yeah so the employer can pick right the employer can say hey maybe I want to allow this extension on the sick pay but maybe not for the extended family leave right
2: Correct. If you, yeah, you're talking about the ex- emergency paid sick leave or the expanded emergency. Yeah, so they can choose one or the other or both or neither, right? Because they're. Yeah. If you looked at the like actual language they're two separate provisions and so it's saying you can extend this one voluntary you can extend that one voluntary. Yeah, I think oh, uh, we've been uh, getting a number of
0: questions with that and um, so I want uh, to thank you for that, because that's one of the things that we've seen on that piece with COVID. What do I do as the employer? So Scott, you brought up, I'm going to put you back on the spot because you brought up the vaccines. <laughs> so now the vaccine availability, that's a hot topic. Can I require vaccines? Um, can I get them and have them do vaccines on site? What What can you share with us in this area?
3: Yeah. So this is, a, this is an area that's still developing and the guidance that we have right now on Mandatory vaccination policies are are a hangover from the previous administration. So we're expecting the guidance to change in some way, shape or form. But generally speaking, the answer is yes, but it depends. So can I require vaccines? The answer is yes, but it depends, which is if you go to law school, that's everything you ever hear from uh, from lawyers is it depends. The answer generally is is employers are permitted to require vaccinations, but they have to make accommodations for individuals who have a health condition that's protected under the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act that would place them into a high-risk category for receiving the vaccination, and then um, they also, also for individuals who have a closely held religious belief or objection to uh, the receiving vaccinations. Really what, what, these, what these tests boil down to are individual circumstances. There is no bright line that you can draw where you can require somebody who has a protected, where you can take a negative employment action against somebody who has a closely held religious belief for refusing to take a vaccination, or for somebody who has a protected disability uh, for, for refusing to take a vaccination. They're very specific analyses and it really boils down and it differs from company to company, employee to employee. So just for instance, if I had an employee that was in a high risk category due to a health condition, what the law would expect me to do is have an interactive conversation with that individual to assess whether there's a reasonable accommodation that can be made for that individual that doesn't place an undue hardship on the business. So can the individual telecommute, can the individual individual work on site at at lower traffic hours? Um, Ultimately though, there are situations where if an individual poses an undue, uh, I'm sorry, an undue burden, the accommodation poses an undue burden on the company, or the individual being on site would pre, uh, present a clear, present, high risk to other employees, that an accommodation may not be made. But the hardest thing that employers are going to have to wrestle with is how do we draw this line? Where do we draw this line? When do we feel comfortable drawing this line? Um, it's a big decision. What I think will mo- most likely be the case, and, and Pete and I have had conversations with third-party vendors, is we're going to be working with the Biden administration in a lobbying capacity with some of our partners to allow the opening of private channels for vaccination acquisition. Right now, vaccines are flowing through the the government to the states, and then the states are really running the program and how they distribute vaccinations. What we would like to see develop over the next few months is an ability for third parties to acquire vaccinations and then employers to say to their employees, hey, look, we have this resource. You can go get vaccinated if you want. They'll handle the firewall. They'll handle the administration. And then the employer isn't as involved in the direct administering of the vaccine. They're not asking any questions about health conditions. They're, they're offloading that to a third party and they're giving the choice. The difficulty will come, and it will come to a lot of businesses. What do we do with the person that will not get it, who does not want to get it, and, and needs to be on site? And it's a, it's a complicated question. I mean, Samantha, you know, you've know, you been heavily invested in looking at this from an EEOC perspective as well. I mean, is there anything that pops in your mind regarding the complexity of the situation that I'm, I'm not stating here?
2: Beyond what you've said from like a compliance standpoint, I just think of also what the message is that you're going to be, you know, other than like in like a high risk, you know, healthcare kind of situation, if you're mandating that your employees need to be vaccinated, what kind of a message are you sending to your employees? Like if you are just working in an office building, that's something else you need to be kind of taking note of. Um, But yeah, I mean, we also need to kind of understand more if the EEOC is going to provide guidance on what is actually a reasonable alternative. Is it just isolation or telecommuting, or is there something else that they could be doing for this reasonable alternative um, so that they don't have to get the vaccine?
3: Well, well, that's the hardest thing that I wrestle with because we all get these calls from our clients. I mean, Annette, Sam, myself, Pete, you know, we get these calls from businesses uh, when COVID shows up on site. And and it happens. I get a call almost. I'd say almost every day, uh, a business has an employee with that tested positive comes on site. And the level of alarm really is subjective to what. What does the site look like, right? Are are we talking about a three hundred square foot office and you got fifteen employees? Are we talking about a fifty thousand square foot manufacturing facility where social distancing is really possible? Uh, It's easy to manage workflows. It's easy to have low traffic. There are there's an incredible amount of subjectivity in assessing these, these situations that can be really frustrating for employers. So when you start thinking about what type of reasonable accommodation could exist for somebody who refuses to get a vaccine, you're gonna have to consider things like that. You're gonna have to consider what does my workspace look like? One thing that Net and I have had conversations about um, is the likelihood that a property and casualty, mm-hmm. uh, a, a PNC liability carrier, and I'm getting out over my skis here, I'm out of welfare, and Annette knows way more about this than I do, could potentially be considering whether employers have vaccination policies in renewals.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah. And, and, to, and to what extent that might factor into receiving a more advantageous rate from a PNC carrier.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that could definitely be if, it, you know, obviously from a work comp standpoint or, you know, could that start to play into it if you didn't have, you know, are we going to start to see more liability on employers? I think some of those things, I don't know, Pete, if you have other things that you want to, I'm thinking about risks to the employer, you know, um, by either mandating or not mandating. I mean, I feel like it's this very tight line that, that these employers will be, walking. Um, it could be great to mandate. It could be not so great to me, you know, yeah. depending on the circumstance.
1: Yeah, I, I'd agree. And I, I think what I would add, certainly for all the employers on on this um, webinar, you're, you're all going to be making decisions that are unique to your businesses and the you know the, the type of industry and and what what it means to mandate or not to mandate, and then the risks associated with a mandate, even with the caveats that that Sam and Scott outlined here, with without really precedent out there even though the EEOC seems to have have green lighted this, but that doesn't mean it's not gonna get challenged and 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 gonna have to, to face what what it really means. So, uh, you know, for us, this is very fluid. You know, we, we intend to do more, um, you know, regional and national webinars over the coming weeks and months on this topic. And you'll be able to, as frequently as you can, we always hope all of you are, are going on to our, our coronavirus website hub that we have, the hub that we've had up on our website for, for really almost the past uh, year. And uh, there's a lot of great content, a lot of great information on there. So we encourage you to go and and keep up on this particular topic um, there as well.
2: Yeah, go ahead. Like previously in like previous kind of like proposed legislation, they were looking for kind of general liability protection for employers. I wasn't sure if, you know, just related to customers coming in, but maybe there is still kind of a push for employers with their employees kind of providing that COVID-19 liability protection.
3: Yeah, yeah, I could I could see that being a carrot dangled in front of an employer to achieve some type of blanket liability protection, saying if you implement some type of, co- of vaccination program, that that could result in some type of protection from enhanced liability above and beyond workers' comp. Because remember, it's not always just employees. Yeah. It might be clients coming on site as well. Customers.
0: Customers, um, customers things, exactly. Exactly. There uh, And there were tons of bills last Um, session all on protecting employers and saying they they would not bear liability none of them made it through the house so i think that's really important to understand and um i also think about from a regulatory standpoint this new executive order on protecting workers and and health and safety what other regulations are going to come out um, requiring um you know, beyond mask wearing or whatever, are there particular industries, especially for essential workers um, or or other types of, um, you know, public workers or whatever that are going to um, dictate maybe some Uh, take the decision away from employers about whether to mandate or not. So there could be some things that way too, which maybe just takes it out of their hands about what do, what do I decide? So I think time will tell on those. Um, We're, we're, we always get so into this. It's really awesome. But um, I do want to take If we can just extend a little bit, we've gotten lots of questions through the chat. And I just want to take a few um, here so that uh, I think we've um, addressed a lot of them in the content here, but um, um, I just want—I'm going to uh, pose this one to you first, Pete. I think if you want to take this, um, with such a slim Democratic majority in both the House and the Senate, what kind of legislation do we think is going to actually pass this year?
1: You know, I mean, certainly some some sort of a of a, another stimulus package, and and what's in certainly the big one that's that's out there, which I'm not quite sure that we all even know. Um, what's in this $1.9 trillion and now this, this latest um, Republican proposal for the yeah. $600 million. Yeah. you know, this, this is day by day, right? We're, we're all watching this, and it seems like it's not even going to be whatever. They, they now have to deal with the um, the impeachment trial, and that's going to take them through much of this month. And then we're into March, and we, we just need to do something to, you know, there's a lot of people that are struggling out there, and a lot of companies that are equally struggling, and we certainly hope that um, employers are taking full advantage of what's available, whether it's on the you know the extension of the payroll protection uh, getting a loan or if it's the employer tax credit side which is has got a lot of appeal that uh, got uh, enhanced with the at the end of the year bill. So I think there's a lot there that, that they need to get out there. I, I don't know anything big on the health care plan around like public option, like we've been talking about. It just seems like that's going to kick the can a little bit here down the road, you know, through, through 2021. I, at least that's what I'm thinking.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Pete. Thoughts?
3: I concur with Pete. <laughs> I think I think uh, I, 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 I'm not holding my breath for a politically risky health package to be introduced this year that is not COVID nineteen related. Um, that is not reacting to some type of COVID nineteen force. For instance, opening up a special enrollment period is re, is a reaction to to, to COVID nineteen. Even if there could be other motives behind behind doing that, it really is framed as a reaction to COVID nineteen. Uh, you know perhaps a severability clause to the Affordable Care Act might, might, uh, might pass, but I'm not even I'm not even terribly optimistic that that would be that that would be, um, that, that that would be a, a, a high level of probability in the next few months here.
2: Yeah. Sam, anything else? No, I mean, yeah, like we have very slim margins. I mean, it's pretty kind of well split down the line. And I know that there are, you know, even though the Democrats technically have the majority, but I I think they said like Senator Manchin is kind of still walk, you know, onto the other side. So I don't think they necessarily have a, you know, yes or no, because I think the other option they were doing was the budget reconciliation, which doesn't require that supermajority.
3: Annette and Sam, I mean, one thing, one thing that I I should mention is that we're talking about the big ticket items. There are some aspects that we lobby for down in DC, for instance, you know, expanding access to telemedicine and virtual care, Um, having a conversation about health savings accounts, having a conversation about COBRA as creditable coverage for Medicare purposes that are not big, sexy issues, um, but they are, uh, inc- incredibly important, especially right now in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, we're getting a lot of attention on uh, expanding easy access to virtual care. And there are things that can be done legislatively to, to enhance that. Um, so there are some issues that are not front and center. You're not going to read about them on any website, major med- media outlets that we talk about every day and that we work on every day down in DC that we think might get some traction. So yeah. to
0: then, and I'm so glad you said that. To then, and there are three new bills that it just got introduced, right, Sarah? Is that what you're going to talk
2: about too? No, I was just thinking uh, it's kind of interesting because you see like these new legislations that are thrown in to these yeah. bills, and you're like, why would it be part of that bill? I feel like it was like when Obama passed the QCERAs, it was part of like some drug bill or something like that. You're like, what? Like, why is it part? But yeah, it's kind of, of think where they throw in stuff to be like to get it to pass. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. If I know
0: this is going to go, what else? What else will? can go with it and not prevent it from going. Yeah. Um, that, that is a common practice. We see that all the time. That's how the uh, Cadillac tax got repealed, right? The, um, um, I will say there are three, to your point, Scott, there are three new bills that just got introduced in the House. And so one is to um, allow direct primary care. uh, If you have that, the contribution not to affect your uh, or disqualify your HSA contributions, you know, Um, COBRA as creditable coverage comes up on a new HRC. 692, 492, something like that, as part of that. And also like some penalties on Medicare Part B if people don't enroll on time. And so there's some different things. And there's a lot of these smaller things that really affect a lot of people that we talk about that we'll be spending time on that I think there could be a lot of agreement on. And so um, those will be definitely things that we, we focus on.
3: There are a lot of issues. There are a lot of issues in that when we get on the DC that you find yeah. they just weren't aware of. On either Correct. side of the eye, oh, or right. Yeah, they right. the, the right. just had no idea really? they were. A I didn't know yeah. that.
0: Yeah, we <laughs> yeah. get a lot of that. Huh? That doesn't make any sense. That's what we think mm-hmm. too. Yeah, I know we do get a lot of those. You're right. Um, good. Um, last, uh, or this is coming up. This we've had a couple of these um, centered around the actual cost of healthcare itself, since it's it's the driver of why everything's expensive. Is there anything discussed or being proposed on that, um, Scott? Any thoughts there?
3: Yeah, I think that I think that most of the political discussions down in D.C. tend to hinge around cost. Uh, they tend to hinge around the affordability of, of of health insurance policies, the affordability of prescription drugs. So they're always being discussed. The the question becomes: to what to, to what um, level are they going to? What's being discussed? Is the policy going to be effective in delivering what um, people want, which is greater access, lower costs, uh, better care? Um, The the realities of drafting a piece of legislation that is going to deliver what I know my clients want, uh, which is a flat renewal year over year uh, uh, or a negative renewal. I'm not totally optimistic that we're going to get there that way. What I am hopeful of though, And what hopeful for is that COVID-19, if we're going to take a silver lining from the past year, it's shining a bright light on cost drivers within the system that may not have been front and center in years past. And what we have the opportunity to do from our lobbying efforts on behalf of our clients is to show what is being innovated in the private sector, things like direct primary care, things like virtual care, um, and, and, and alerting uh, things like really interesting on-site and remote wellness programs that are developing every day amongst our employee populations and, and client populations that we work with. And then be able to talk to con, uh, lawmakers and say, look, let's try to create an environment that encourages this type of innovation. Just don't get in the way, maybe create incentives. But don't get in the way of this type of innovation because it is making a significant impact on the bottom line, and we're just getting started. I mean, it's really just starting. So, I, I, I just to add, Scott, to what you were saying, and I think you know, it's it's
1: trying to find what what is the one thing that we can do, and you know, there's there's many levers, many different uh, ideas that 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 sir i know we're all talking amongst amongst our organizations that we're a part of and and one certainly uh, the opportunity is there to have the government really do what they can do with their muscle of their you know the, the, the wallet so to speak and provide a reinsurance backstop you know which they do on the property and casualty side you know you think of the terrorism coverage that was created when, when 9-11 happened or or like we have with flood insurance, you know, there are things they don't have to be in the actual doing of or the administration of, and the, you know, far left idea of a, of a single payer uh, all in model, but, but how can they use that muscle to provide on these marketplace exchanges for individuals to provide that reinsurance in, in a, in a, carefully designed way that's going to bring the cost down. And there's about a dozen States already starting down this path and it's already starting to yield lower costs. So I think if we could build upon yeah. that. That's probably a good, good strategy.
2: Yeah. Great. Great point. Yeah. I think the other thing would be kind of what Scott was mentioning, you know, innovation, just looking at, you know, in the private market just innovating beyond our kind of standard notion of healthcare. I think of, you know, as a direct primary care, making changes on a federal level so that people get that tax break. So if the cost of the membership can now be tax-free and then also not having an impact your HSA, taking those innovations and being able to like work it in so it's still as attractive other as employer-sponsored coverage, I think is another way to kind of go about reducing the cost of healthcare beyond just, you know, the standard insurance plan.
3: And and Sam, I mean, you know, this year and going into next year, the government took a major step in creating an ecosystem where companies like One Digital can deliver incredible results to our clients by shining a bright light on the cost of care and and shining a bright light on the negotiation between uh, payers and providers and having and placing a, a requirement that that data become public and published and actionable we've been chomping at the bit to get access to that data for, gosh, I'm, Annette and Pete, I'm sure, as long as uh, everybody's oh, yeah. been in this industry. Now, you know the sophistication of the, what we can do with that data and make it usable and start steering uh, uh, individuals to high-performing, lower-cost uh, uh, providers, we're just, I mean, it's, it, I, I'm, you can hear how excited I am. I feel like I'm standing on the, the edge of a revolution in, in how we can use that data. That's an example of creating the ecosystem that we can, that we can innovate with and deliver some real results.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're talking about the transparency rules and all that. Yeah, and I think, you know, having us going in there and lobbying, because, I mean, the people that are, you know, our congressmen don't necessarily have insurance as a background. So us going in there, especially you, Scott, and explaining it to them to help build this ecosystem. Yeah. And I think
0: those are huge things and those will be things we'll continue to focus on. I know we're a little bit over, but I want to take one more question before we wrap. Um, We've allowed, uh, here's the question, we have allowed high risk employees, 14 of them, to work from home with doctor certification of the condition. At what point do we bring them back? And we don't have a telecommute commuting policy. So is there some sort of legal risk in mandating that they do come back? And Sam, I'm going to start with you <laughs> since this is <laughs> you
2: know, like, I, I first like gravitate that. to the compliance.
0: Yeah, I'm
1: definitely deferring to the attorneys on, on this. uh <laughs> well, a little closer in
2: my comfort zone. I think you have to look in kind of to OSHA and to yeah. kind of their guidance on mandating employees coming back to the workplace. Generally, um, I think teleworking is a good option, so making that available if it's an option, I do recommend having a telework policy. It's always better anyway to have some type of policy so that your employees know the terms and kind of conditions of it. Um, and then if teleworking is not an option, maybe it's only for your kind of your non-essential they can still work from home. Um, really, you're just trying to protect them from you know the undue risk of getting COVID 19 or the exposure from it. Yeah um you know and I was thinking about that um the
0: policies that you have too i think sam uh, i know that you and i um very often um, most of the questions and the stumbling blocks for employers happen because they don't have a policy in place and so what what most employers don't want to do is to do one thing for one employee and not the same thing for another. And without having some of these policies in place to either, either like telecommuting is a good one. We either allow telecommuting or we don't, or these are the circumstances that we do. Uh, Then, you know, you're kind of backed into a corner to start making these one-off decisions. And that's where you start to get on risky ground. And so, yeah, the more you can um, put in policies about that, those working environments and, and, you know, what does it take to, it's when can somebody return? So it's not even like, when do we take them back? When can they come back too? We've seen that a lot with COVID, right? Um, do I allow them back on the floor now? Or when am I supposed to do, you know, so a lot of those things, um, those, are, those are tough. But having more of so, uh, something that they can administer fairly
2: and uniformly is really important. Yep, uniform and consistent. <laughs>
0: Thanks, uh, thanks, Sam, Pete, Scott, um, thanks, and thanks everybody for joining us today. Please know that One Digital's um, strategic benefits and workforce consultants we're here to uh, with expert guidance for you and we're here to support you help you navigate through the next few months and the next year as things change you know obviously what we all know is that um, change is inevitable what it is not sure but we're here um, always just try to stay out in front of it and help you assimilate and figure out what it is that you need to worry about and, and what you can kind of put off um, that's not imminent so don't hesitate to reach out learn more from us once again I'd like to remind everyone that you can view this employer advisory session and all of our past sessions on our website. So you can go there under events, stay safe, stay healthy, stay connected with your family, friends, and coworkers, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.
1: Thanks everyone.
0: Thanks.